Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that we can be here this evening. And we pray that as we open your word now, you would give us ears to listen and hearts to receive what it is that you have recorded for us. We pray that by your Holy Spirit, you'd bring us understanding and transformation. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, to be honest, my mind was completely boggled. Up on the screen is a picture from Martin Place, 2012 April. Does anybody know what this is a picture of? This is when One Direction first visited Sydney for the very first time. Thousands of people gathered outside Channel 7 studios. Some of you might have been there. Thousands of teenage, mostly teenage girls, there were some men there as well, and adult women as well, were crowded, having waited for hours to get a glimpse of, of One Direction, to see Harry and Zane, and I don't know the names of the other guys. And, just clamoring, and, and you know, some people were fainting when they just got a glimpse or a wave or a smile. They came with signs. It was pandemonium. I was really scared that day on public transport on my way to Sydney University. And I'd never seen anything like it in my lifetime. But truth be told, time and time again, this sort of thing does happen. Uh, maybe not as intense as that day in 2012, but we do see people gathering, don't we? People gathering for a cause, something that they really care about, something they think is worth their time and their effort and their energy. In other words, we see people assigning worth to things. Whether it's you know, the Beatles visiting Sydney in the 60s or, or a major sporting event, people will gather and brave the cold uh, because they think something is worth going to or participating in. Uh, in other words, if I might put it this way, uh, people worship. Now some of us here today might not be uh, familiar with the things of God and think, worship, that seems like quite an outdated concept, a, a bit of a strange term to, to apply to something like gathering at Martin Place from 3 a.m. in the morning. Uh, but the truth is that all of us worship every day, and not just in large sporting or music gatherings like there on the screen, that's an EDM festival in Germany. Uh, the word worship comes from an older word, it's a mishmash of worth and ship, the idea of assigning worship to something that you think is worth your time and energy and attention. To worship something is to devote honor and attention, uh, to serve something that you think deserves that energy, uh, to have a posture of giving respect and attention. We worship, uh, we worship things every day, from our jobs to our families, to our phones and our social media profiles. We give them attention, we think they're worth our time, and on one level, that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? It's not wrong to give respect and attention to our job or our studies or our possessions or our family, especially that which is due to them. They are owed honor and service and care. But what about God? What about worshiping God? Well, over the next two weeks, we're taking a short break from our series in Romans 12 to 14 uh, to take a look at the songbook of the Bible, the book of Psalms. And, and today, this week, we're in, in Psalm 29. Uh, we see this song written by King David that has a call to worship. Did you see that there in verse 2? In verse 2, worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. It's been interesting this week to see in the media, uh, mainstream and social, uh, the, the comments that have been made about the recent 2021 census finding that more Australians find themselves non-religious and less Australians find themselves identifying as Christian. 
And while I'm not going to comment more on the, how to interpret and act in light of this finding, perhaps it would be uncontroversial to say that the notion of worshipping God seems very strange in our modern society. This evening, I want to help us answer this question. Why would anyone want to worship the God of Israel? So would you come with me to Psalm 29, printed there in your handouts, or you can have one of the few Bibles open, as we seek to listen to this song's answer to this question, why would anyone want to worship the God of Israel? Point one, here we are. The God of Israel's worship is totally appropriate. And we're taking a look at verses one to two. Psalm 29 forms a bit of a trilogy in the book of Psalms because there are three Psalms that are written by King David, specifically about the glory of God, and are steeped in imagery from our created world. You can imagine David writing Psalm 8 under a star-speckled sky with a full moon. Or Psalm 19, maybe David was watching a, a glorious sunrise or a beautiful sunset. Well, with Psalm 29, we can imagine David's hands trembling as he composed this psalm under a magnificent thunderstorm and flood-inducing rain. And as the lights of his room flicker, as, as the wind you know, is blowing through, what is it that King David wants his singers, the people of Israel, to sing about? Well, come with me to verse 1. Verse 1, ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. There's a lot going on here, so we need to put some pieces in place for us to understand all the different nuances. But you see that David invokes the personal name of the God of Israel. You see that there when you see the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. When we see that in English, that is the English way of us denoting what God's personal name is in the original language. And in these verses, the psalm calls three times for something to be ascribed to God, to be given to God, to be recognized as rightfully belonging to God. Namely, glory and strength. You see that there in verse one. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. The God of Israel is the God of glory and strength. But what is glory? All right, well, what is it? Well, I've come up with a very technical and long definition. Here it is up on the screen. Glory is the splendor of something awesome. And every time you say glory and you define it, you have to do that hand motion as well. Glory is the splendor of something awesome. It's, it's when you see something and go, wow, that's really cool. Or wow, that's extraordinary. Or wow, that is radiance. That is amazing. Uh, glory describes what Roger Federer's forehand is like, right? Uh, hitting something, it is one of the most beautiful shots in all of tennis. When you look at that, you go, wow, that's a cut above the rest. Glorious. Or when uh, 2019's Avengers Endgame was going and the climactic scene happened. Look, this came out three years ago. If you haven't seen it yet, you don't really care. But in that climactic scene, right, 11 years in the making, all these heroes coming together in this awesome moment, Alan Silvestri's score rising, and you're going, wow, this is amazing. I've never seen anything like this before. Glorious, right? Amazing, splendid, the splendor of something awesome. But when you look out at the ocean, and you see the sun's light glistening across the water. You go, wow, that's amazing. That's awesome. Glory is the splendor of something awesome. And when we speak about God's glory, 
It's the splendor of his holiness, as you see there in verse 2. The God of Israel is holy, meaning he is completely other and separate and unlike anything or anyone else. He's in a class of his own. And to see that, to see God's complete otherness, to, to recognize that, that's the glory of God. Whenever the Bible speaks of God's glory as a thing, it's talking about a way in which God has, has revealed his presence to, to show more of himself. Every time the Bible talks about the glory of God, it's talking about a way in which God has shown more of himself in some way, appearing so that others can see and recognize and ascribe just how significant he is, how other he is, how different he is, how extraordinary. And so the psalm calls for God to be recognized and regarded as glorious, because he is. That's what we get from verse 2, when it says that this glory is due his name. This isn't a call to respect and honor God more than he deserves, or to see him as more awesome than he really is. Rather, this is about ascribing what is real what is rooted in reality, what is totally and completely appropriate. One of my favorite actors is Hugh Laurie, uh, Black Adder, House, even Stuart Little. He's the father in that, you know? Anyway, but uh, Hugh Laurie, in a 2006 interview, he was sharing about an incident that happened where he realized that there might be something wrong, um, something wrong with him. Uh, he was at a demolition derby, and upon seeing two cars smash together and explode, he realized that he felt bored. Just look at this quote up on the screen. In an interview, he said, boredom is not an appropriate response to exploding cars. Hugh Laurie examined himself and saw that what he was ascribing wasn't the right response given what he was perceiving. And he made the conclusion that something was wrong, and he ended up getting some professional help. There are such things as inappropriate responses to what we are perceiving, what we are observing. For example, indifference to the, uh, to the death of a loved one, or excitement at the pain of an animal. And there are inappropriate forms of worship as well. For example, giving honor to corrupt rulers and figures. But there are also ways of worshiping inappropriately where worth is not assigned to people who deserve it. So, for example, if you don't follow your boss's instructions, or if you think that Roger Federer was not ever really good at tennis. The claim of this psalm is that the worship of the God of Israel is completely deserving, wholly appropriate, because of who he is. Giving your time and energy and attention to the God of Israel is a right recognition of who he is. And this makes him different from other kinds of deities. This is a really important point. You see, the reason why people would want to worship the God of Israel is not to appease him, as if we need to, to give him some stuff in order for him to like us and to accept us. No, no. The claim of the Bible is that all of us have misordered desires. We are all bad worshipers. In fact, the only way that we can be accepted by God is, is, is through his son, as he has reached out to us by grace. Nor is the reason why we should worship God 
because we need to stroke his ego somehow, like he's a narcissist up there, like he's lacking something, and unless we appease him, he was going to lash out. Not at all. The God of Israel deserves worship because he's glorious and strong. He is amazingly splendid in his holiness. And that makes him different from other kinds of gods. Did you notice that this call to ascribe and worship is not given directly to the Israelites? Back there in verse 1, notice who this song is addressed to. David isn't calling on the Israelites of his time to worship God. In verse 1, he's addressing the heavenly beings, which could be a reference to angels. It could be a reference to other cosmic entities. But the point is this. God is not another deity amongst a plethora of others to be tossed aside, to be ignored. He is the one who possesses ultimate glory and strength. And if the heavenly beings are rightly called to worship God, then surely we have earthly beings should as well. The first reason why anyone would want to worship God is because his worship is totally appropriate. That's point one. Let's come to point two then. Point two, the God of Israel's voice is thunderously strong. And we're looking at verses three to nine. Verses one to two were like the rousing introduction of the song, kind of like the first 36 seconds of Fight Song by Rachel Platten, or the first 56 seconds of everyone's favorite Christmas carol, All I Want for Christmas, All I Want for Christmas Is You by Mariah Carey. The song hasn't really kicked in yet, but, but you've got this rousing introduction that sets us up for the rest of the song. And here in verses three to nine, the song really kicks in. And I do apologize, the best example I could come up with for what's going on here is Rick Astley's Never Gonna Give You Up. Because what's going on in that song is you've got the chorus that keeps repeating and repeating, and it's the same few words that he starts with, and he's just giving you a flurry of descriptions that almost threaten to, to overwhelm you, but he's really making the same point, right? Never gonna give you up, never gonna let you down, never gonna run around. I won't do the rest. You get the idea, right? Same few words, flurry of descriptions, basically saying the same thing. Well, here in Psalm 29, the words are the voice of the Lord. This aspect of God's holiness is put on display because in these seven verses, the voice of the Lord is mentioned seven times with a flurry of, of imagery, including that of a thunderstorm and flood-inducing rain. Just take a look at it with me. Verse three, the voice of the Lord is over the waters. Verse four, the voice of the Lord is powerful. Verse four also, the voice of the Lord is majestic. Verse five, the voice of the Lord breaks the cedar trees. Verse seven, the voice of the Lord strikes with flashes of lightning. Verse eight, the voice of the Lord shakes the desert. Verse nine, the voice of the Lord twists the oaks and strips the forests bare. This flurry of images threatens to almost overwhelm us, and yet we realize they're making the same profound point. God's voice is thunderously strong, powerful, majestic. And, and did you notice how the voice of the Lord and, and God himself, they're, they're pretty synonymous, aren't they? Look at verse three. In line one of verse three, it's the voice of the Lord that's over the waters, but then in line in line one, sorry, it's the voice of the Lord that is over the waters. And in line three, it is the Lord who is thundering over the waters. Or verse five, in line one, it's the voice of the Lord that breaks the cedars. And then in line two, it is the Lord who is breaking in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. And yet again in verse eight, in line one, it's the voice of the Lord. 
that shakes the desert. And then in line two, it's the Lord who shakes the desert. The voice of the Lord is synonymous with God himself because God himself is thunderously strong. And just reading this fills me with a sense of wonder and awe, and if I'm honest, fear. A bit of fear as well. <laughs> because I can get an axe chopping down a tree eventually, but a voice breaking it into pieces? That's weird. That's strange. That is not what I'm used to. And verse 6 there, take a look at that. Verse 6 describes God as making Lebanon leap like a calf, Syrian like a, like a young wild ox. These two lines here in verse 6 are describing the same thing, as, as Syrian was a mountain cluster in Lebanon. Um, and, and, and what's going on here is that Lebanon, Syrian, the idea is that God himself makes this land and this mountain Move. This isn't a good type of leaping. This isn't like, you know, a sheep or a goat jumping up with its legs in the air and leaping away in joy. This is galloping away in fear, jumping away like a scared ox. God makes the very land and mountains themselves jump away in fearful retreat. Yes, I feel wonder and awe, and it fills me with fear as well. I wonder how it makes you feel. But we do know what the beings in God's temple feel. There in verse 9, at the very end, the response of all those in God's temple is to cry out, glory. Now this could be God's physical temple in Jerusalem, even though at the time David, well, at the time of David, the temple hadn't been built yet. Although, we know that later on when the temple was built by Solomon, the people would have sung this psalm there as well. But it could also be the heavenly temple, the temple in heaven, God's heavenly temple, which would make sense because in verse one, we saw that this psalm is addressing the heavenly beings and calling on them to ascribe glory to God. Here in verse nine, having seen the splendor of God's holiness, specifically through his thunderously strong voice, they do just that. I think that this also makes sense of what's going on here with the references to Lebanon and Kadesh. Because in the ancient Near East, there were people who worshipped different gods, and one of those gods was the storm god, Baal. And without getting too much into the details, some of the literature of the time of these surrounding people held special significance to the land of Lebanon and to features like Syrian and the desert of Kadesh. Here's the point. By incorporating these features, these references, I think what David is doing is he's calling on any heavenly beings, even this supposed storm god Baal, and saying, you guys are nothing compared to the one who really deserves the glory, the God of Israel, the one who really deserves the ascription of glory and strength. No other being deserves the glory that the God of Israel does because he is in a class unto himself. Before we come to our last point, I think I just need to ask us to consider whether we are regarding God rightly. When you think about God, when you speak about God, do you regard God with awe and wonder and fear? Do you recognize his power over creation? 
or do you regard him lightly? This evening, would you be reminded afresh of the awe-inspiring power of God? As you go about your weeks and off your life as a living sacrifice to God, would you worship God with awe and reverence, offering acceptable worship, for our God is a consuming fire? Point three, the God of Israel's work is providing peace. And we're here looking at verses 10 to 11. These last two verses are like the last 13 seconds of Barbie Girl by Aqua, or the last 40 seconds of Haven't Met You Yet by Michael Bublé. The song is basically done, but keep listening. Don't skip yet to the next song on your playlist, because if you keep listening carefully, you'll see that, yes, some of the things being sung you've already heard before, but there are some nuggets there if you just listen carefully. There's more to hear. It may sound like it's not adding anything new, but these two verses are amazing in where they lead us with this song. Take a look at verse 10. In verse 10, we see that the God who is glorious is the God who is enthroned as king. King over the floodwaters from the storm, just like how God was, was ruling and king over the flood in the days of Noah. As he was king in the past, he will be enthroned as king forever. And what is it that this king, this glorious king, this king who has strength and glory and a thunderously strong voice, what is it that this king does? Verse 11. The Lord gives strength to his people. The Lord blesses his people with peace. See, at the end of this psalm, after this rousing global, cosmic, glorious song about God and his power. Where does David want us to to end on? It's to know that this God uses his strength for his people. To bring them peace. I think that the, the peace aspect here in that second line helps us qualify the strength aspect in the first line. You see, the God who in verse 1 is rightly ascribed with strength, here in verse 11, uses that strength for his people. And the strength that we humans need isn't the strength to strip forests bare or to shake deserts. No, the strength that we need is the powerful and majestic gift of peace. Because It's when people are at war or in conflict that they are most vulnerable. When there are misuses of power that people are most open to to receiving wounds that, that just won't go away anytime soon. Now, true strength, the strength that God gives his people is is the strength of peace. You know, while in the first instance, worshiping God is right because of who he is, glorious, strong. In the second instance, worshiping God is also right because of what he does for his people. His work as the forever enthroned king is to bless his people with peace. You know, about a thousand years after this psalm was written, the word of God himself came in the flesh, Jesus Christ. 
And one time he was traveling in a boat over the Sea of Galilee, and a furious thunderstorm just came up over the Sea of Galilee. And, and the disciples were, were scared and worried, going, Teacher, don't you care about us? Don't you care if we die? And Jesus got up and, and said, Be quiet. Be still. And then the storm and the wind and the waves, they, they just died down and it was completely calm. The voice of God himself demonstrated authority over the wind and the waves and the storm. And the disciples responded with abject joy and excitement, Jesus, you're the man, thank you, we love you. Can you show us more of your power? No, that's not what they did. Mark's gospel, chapter four, verse 41, it tells us this, that the disciples, they were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. You see, in Jesus, we see that the power of God, the word of God, the one who came from the voice of God, is to be feared. And yet in Jesus, it is also where we see that this power of God is what led to our ultimate peace. For it was this Jesus who went to the cross to take the punishment that you and I deserve, bearing the punishment for our sins, enduring the wrath of God. It was this Jesus who was raised from the dead on the third day. It is this Jesus who won our salvation and promised to provide peace in our relationship with God right now. To, to call us and transform us to be peacemakers right now with our hands and our feet and our words. And who promises one day when he returns and ushers in the new creation to bring us lasting peace forever. Is this Jesus who we have come to call Lord, who is the God of Israel, the one who will bring us into the new creation where we will enjoy the splendor of God's holiness face to face forever. Why would anyone want to worship the God of Israel? Well, firstly, because it is totally appropriate. And secondly, because his voice is thunderously strong. He is holy. He is different. And thirdly, because God makes it his business to provide peace, now in part and in the future, completely. And you know, in a real sense, worshiping the God of Israel, orienting ourselves upwards, it's what will make us truly good, true, and beautiful human beings. Because where does the desire to dominate and oppress come from? Well, at least in part, I'd say that it comes from mistaken notions that the power to, to twist and strip and mistreat others is something that we can grasp hold of and say, yes, I can do with this what I want in the name of some sort of so-called peace. But if we rightly recognize that all glory and strength rightly belongs to God, and he never misuses his power. And not only that, but 
ultimate peace will not be achieved through our acts of strength, though we can achieve some kind of peace here and now. If we rightly understand where all of that rightly belongs, then it will change the way in which we speak, the way in which we treat others, the way in which our systems and structures work, the way we relate, the way our words build up rather than tear down. What a difference it would make if we had a right fear of God and didn't seek to ascribe to ourselves what only belongs to him. Not a fear of judgment, God's love has driven that out, but a fear-filled respect to let, to let God be God. And that leads us to recognize his worth with our worship. Brothers and sisters, may this be what we focus our time and energy and attention on, and may we, with those in the temple, cry out, glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks for this psalm. We thank you for your word that comes from your mouth. We do pray that you would help us to not just be hearers of your word, but doers as well. In your son's name we pray. Amen.